0: Welcome to New Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. What do we do with certain teachers throughout church history with whom we disagree, often significantly, but simultaneously we respect and appreciate them? There are many of them, and it behooves us, as it were, to consider how we should think about them and what we should do with their resources. Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Augustine... John Wesley, Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis. Hmm, is there a, is there someone modern like that too? Oh, hmm. uh, Doug Wilson. Uh, <laughs> what do we do with these people and their resources? That's the subject of today's episode, and there's no shortage of things to say. And We'll get into it after the music.
1: Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word.
0: I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important, but not essential, would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, Oh, wow. And I hold to the inerrancy
1: of scripture. Okay. title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing
0: that I believe is gonna invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, That's going to, I literally feel that chains are gonna break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. Yay. Yeah. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master.
1: Give us some men who know the truth! Well, as we get into this discussion today, we have so many things. And and I just want to make note that Jeremy said Augustine, and so I'm going to say Augustine so that we have good balance of pronunciation through this episode. I think that's important. And we
0: might try different combinations along the way. Yeah. So little little Easter eggs that we'll
1: put in the episode. (laughs) Well, we rattled off a whole bunch of names. Well, you know, as from our last episode where it was just Jeremy and myself discussing things, we, we kind of touched on this issue of, of what do we do with resources from individuals that we disagree with. And a lot of times those resources where there's disagreement, it's on like secondary or tertiary matters, conscience issues. But then there's the issue of what about guys that are kind of wonky on things that in our chart, we have it in the primary column. How do we think through these things? And so was, we're just going to kind of walk through history and think of different historical figures that would fit into that category and then come back around at the end and discuss, okay, now here are individuals that are often quoted favorably, individuals that we like, we have respect for. And yet, man, there's, there's some quotes in here that we read them and go, what? This guy believes that. Well, how do we, how do we think about that? How do we think of these individuals and their resources? And we will start with the Anti
0: Nicene Fathers. Uh, Ken, you want to des- describe what that means, Anti
1: Nicene? That's a kind of a strange term. It is. So, Anti Nicene, uh, we think of the Nicene Council, where there was the, uh, the, the Nicene Creed was developed. Well, Anti Nicene, this is individuals that were before that council. He's, people from church history, often thought of as the early church fathers, individuals that wrote and taught and preached before the Nicene Council.
0: So basically, Apostle John to Constantine, right. in that the 100s, 200s, and early 300s AD. Uh, I think this is probably the era of church history where people who existed back then get away with the most— Mm. Uh, strange beliefs and doctrines, and even primary errors, and that's for at least one good reason. One good reason being, it was early. Uh, the The circulation of the Bible of the New Testament, in particular, um, it, it took time. God didn't drop the entire New Testament on every believer from the moment of conversion from the first century on. It, that right, it just didn't happen that way, and people were, uh, Christians, were gleaning and holding on to Scripture as they organically recognized Scripture by the Spirit of God, and everything just took some time. So that's a good reason. Now, there's a bad reason why we let people get away with stuff, and I think, sadly, this is probably the most common approach that's in people's minds when they come to these Antinocene Fathers, is they basically assume that these guys were all on their particular side. So whatever denominational, whatever (laughs) denominational pull they have or whatever, it's like, well, the early church fathers were independent, fundamental King James only Baptist, don't you know? (laughs) And others will say, no, they were Presbyterians. I mean, that isn't it clear how Presbyterian they were. Uh, and, And the thing about these early church fathers is you can find anything in them that will support anything you want to, to promote.
1: They were just just, about as varied as we are today to to a degree. Yes.
0: Now, the reality is when you hold those two truths um, that it was early on and we got to give them some grace, but also we need to not just use them to promote whatever we're trying to promote. We need to just have a balanced view. It can be a little scary whenever you read these Antinocene Fathers, (laughs) Um, especially when you consider (laughs) we have just a a very small fraction of the whole of their teaching. I mean, these guys were speaking in places and it was never documented. So what we have is just like probably less than 1% of their overall teaching, and a significant portion of that is frightening. Now, there is a significant portion that's very reassuring and comforting in their views on the gospel and their views on many primary points. But at the same time, you read some things and your eyes just kind of get wide like, are you serious? Right. And uh, we want to point out those wide-eyed, are you serious moments today.
1: (laughs) So. Well, it just reminds us how, like, church history is kind of messy. We like it to be nice and neat and tidy, but it's just not that way as much as we wish it was. And then there's uh, other historical realities as well, that there was persecution at different points through these uh, time periods, and so a lot of writings used to exist, were destroyed because of persecution, trying to stamp out heresies or dissidents in other ways. So it's just, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of aspects of things going on here that make it a little problematic for us to think through.
0: Right. Well, as we venture down this road today, let's begin with the Didache. Didache is a Greek word, and it's basically, it means the teachings. Um, this is the, the teachings of the early church. It's likely that the Didache was composed, uh, and published quote unquote between 90 and 110 AD. So it's extremely early. We're mm-hmm. talking just right on the heels of apostle John. And, uh, there's some interesting stuff in there. It's not a long book. You can sit down and read it just in a matter of minutes. It's not long, but, um, In addition to the good things that it has to say, (laughs) some of the interesting things it says is that no one should be able to take communion until those people are baptized. And it actually quotes scripture and says, let's not give what is holy to the dogs. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty interesting view of baptism, wouldn't you say? And its place and how the ordinances interact with each other.
1: Are uh, there? There are a lot of people in denominations that believe that today. I don't know if you're aware yeah. of that. Oh yeah. Um, yep. But yep. I don't. I don't know if they cite the Didache as as the, the the reason why they hold to that view. But it's an interesting point that there are several denominations that affirm that.
0: Well, and of the churches that I know that have this policy, it's not because they view baptism as something that makes you holy that takes you from being a dog right <laughs> to a saint. <laughs> Uh, But that's what, that's how the Didache frames it. Right. Um, And then speaking of baptism, it says that baptism is to be performed in live water. So no stock tank or Mm -hmm. swimming pool. And uh, it prescribes fasting, that you are to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. It actually mentions the hypocrites who fast, I think, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with the saints fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, and right. it prescribes that that we recite the model prayer three times a day. Yeah. Uh, Matthew six model prayer. Um, these are obviously extra biblical prescriptions that are presented in this book as like this is the way it's supposed to be. And I just got a feeling that if someone today came out with a book that said it's supposed to be this way, we would all be like, "Whoa, this guy went over the line." Yeah, read. You can read that book, but read it with caution because mm-hmm. he's like. Going beyond what is written. You know, they the first Corinthians four language going beyond what is written.
1: It is interesting on the point of, of baptism that it gives like gradations of just like, well, this this is the best thing. This is what you ought to do. Live water water. And you think mm-hmm. it even prescribes a temperature, like it should be Cold, maybe, or something like that? I can't remember yes. exactly. Yeah, I, th- I
0: believe it's cold running live and, water.
1: Yeah. And if you don't have cold running water, like a, like a river or stream or something, it's okay. You could do a hot spring. Well, if you don't have a hot spring, well, then you can do it this way. And if you yeah. don't have that, well, then you can pour <laughs> on top. Like, like, it goes steps by steps down, but the preferred is still live running cold water. Yes,
0: which um, <clears throat> it does show the place of baptism by immersion in the early church. Uh, this wasn't for babies, but, yeah. you know, that's that's just something to take note of along the way. Uh, a, a couple of quick things uh, as we move along the timeline of church history. Ignatius. Ignatius, very, very helpful with many articulations of doctrine. So we're not throwing any of these people under the bus, per se. Uh, we we respect a lot of what all these people have done, but we're pointing out, the remember, the wide-eyed moments. Ignatius had some interesting views of communion about what communion does whenever we partake of communion. Um, He called it the medicine of immortality, which just is a phrase I wouldn't use and requires further definition, you know, but it doesn't sound that great on the surface. um, And he, like many other people in the early church, had very strong views of church leadership that, again, just needed to be explained a little bit more or to use a word that I hate using, nuanced, uh, talking mm. about you, you approach the local church leaders as God and you follow them. Uh, I believe it was Ignatius who said, you should follow your local bishop as Jesus followed his heavenly father.
1: Yes. Yeah. I, re- I remember that quote now that you say that.
0: A little strong. Yeah. Uh, Justin Martyr, he was very much into <laughs> apologetics. We know this. Uh, he is like the father of christian apologetics he can be called sometimes yet his love for greek philosophy led him to some strange places where he actually said that socrates was a christian before christ because socrates had a concept of the logos uh, logos being word you think john 1 1 in the beginning was the word well socrates had this idea of what the logos was he lived before the time of christ and Justin said, yeah, he was on to something, so much so that he could be considered a Christian before Christ. Ah, <laughs> uh, boy, that's bad. That's really, really bad. Tertullian. He believed that demons <laughs> invented jewelry.
1: So this was this was new information to me, and I, I saw this in the notes that Jeremy had typed out, and I saw that, and I was drinking tea at the time. I almost spit it out laughing because it's like, What? <laughs> Yeah, there you go.
0: Yeah, demons invented jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> again, we res- we appreciate so much what Tertullian had to say, but again, it, I mean, if he published a blog article about that today, everyone would be like, "Yikes!" And and imagine the other stuff that he maybe believed. There's more. There's got to be more, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, this is again from T- Tertullian. It's taken from uh, the volume one book in the series, uh, Ancient Christian Doctrine. There's, there are these ancient Christian doctrine, ancient Christian commentary, even like Reformation doctrine, Reformation commentary series. that are very academic, and they're all collections of quotes from men from that time period. And this is from volume one, where it examines many of the internecine fathers. And this is Tertullian on traditions. So this is what I was gasping at earlier, Ken, uh, before we hit record, that I didn't share with you out loud. So, um, more of an extended quote, but this is Tertullian. If no passage of Scripture has prescribed a certain practice, surely custom, which flows from tradition, confirms it. For how can anything come into general use if it has not been handed down? You claim that traditions must be based on written authority to be valid. Let us inquire, therefore, to see whether this is so or not. We shall certainly agree that a given practice should not be accepted if there are no similar cases of unwritten traditions relying on the sanction of custom alone that might offer us a precedent. To deal with this matter briefly, I shall begin with baptism. All right, so that was all set up to this. He says this about the tradition of baptism that should be maintained. Just before we go into the water, we make a solemn profession in front of the congregation and at the direction of the president that we renounce the devil his pomp, and his angels. Then we are immersed three times, and we make a somewhat fuller pledge, which the Lord has appointed in the gospel. Then, when we come up out of the water as newborn children, we taste a mixture of milk and honey, first of all, and we give up bathing for a week. We also take the sacrament of the Eucharist before dawn, and from the hands of no one but the presidents, which the Lord commanded us to do at meal times and enjoined on all alike. Every year we commemorate the anniversary of this event by making offerings for the dead. We think it is unlawful to fast or to kneel and worship on the Lord's Day. We rejoice in the same privilege from Easter to Pentecost. We get upset if any of the bread or wine should fall to the ground, even if it is our own. We make the sign of the cross on our foreheads every time we go in or out. When we get dressed when we bathe, when we sit at table, when we light the lamps, and when we go to bed. If for these and other such rules you demand a scriptural injunction, you will find none. Tradition will be offered to you as their origin, custom as their confirmation, and faith as their observer. Wow. Just as you continue to practice today.
1: Right. (laughs) Wow, that is... That's unique.
0: Offerings for the dead. I want to know more about that. Mm. Um, Irenaeus, one more. We'll keep it moving. Sorry, I got hung up on Tertullian. (laughs) Irenaeus, uh, he believed in the recapitulation theory of the atonement, which is interesting. Um, There are different theories of the atonement that have existed uh, throughout church history. And uh, these are the recapitulation theory and the... Uh, ransom theory we 're going to talk about briefly, both of those are not substitutionary atonement, mm-hmm. so you want to define substitutionary atonement while I pull up this definition for recapitulation
1: yeah, uh, penal substitutionary atonement is essentially the belief that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for sins of humanity, as we would describe it. Uh, there are a limited atonement episode we'll we'll get into that more uh, about who uh, who who Christ actually was a substitute for, um, but yeah, Christ died as a penal substitutionary sacrifice, taking the place of sinners on the cross, uh, that the God's wrath may be abated by being poured out on Christ instead of us. Uh, and the other theories of the Atonement take a different view of what was actually accomplished on that cross, um, but we would look at Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, etc., that would show us the, the penal substitutionary aspect.
0: So the recapitulation view of the atonement, it sees Christ as the new Adam who succeeds where Adam failed, and basically what's at the heart of this theory is that Christ undoes the wrong that Adam did. And because Christ is united with humanity through his own humanity, he can then lead humankind on to eternal life, uh, including moral sanctification. Yeah. And so even though there are some aspects in there, of course, we would agree with, it does not address the, the wrath, the bearing wrath in yeah. our place for our sins. And so Irenaeus was a recapitulation theory guy. Origen was a <laughs> ransom theory guy, <laughs> among other things. And uh, Origen, you know, put, put forth this view of the ransom theory, which says that the death of Christ was a ransom, and the ransom was paid to Satan. Right. So that when Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, they basically sold humanity's soul to Satan, and he was the possessor of souls. And then when Jesus came along and died, he bought back humanity by paying the price of his own life to Satan, um, and then you know, Satan you know, didn't realize that he could rise from the dead, and so Satan ended up getting the bad part of that deal.
1: Yeah, and of course, Scripture talks about Christ's death being a ransom, Uh but the question of who that ransom is paid for is really a crucial issue, and Origen believes it was paid to the devil, and that is, that was problematic.
0: What about Origen on hermeneutics, huh?
1: Oh, what couldn't be said about Origen on hermeneutics? Oh, (laughs) dude was all over the place. Yeah, he had these different levels of what he believed. There was the there's the literal meaning that you would see in the text, but then there's the spiritual meaning. I think there were three or four le- layers of meaning that you could get into to find, and some of them are just quite fanciful. I mean, al- as allegorical as you can get, uh, in absurd ways. Yeah, I mean his mm.
0: his exegesis was speculative. Um, There's a guy on Twitter who's been sharing a lot of interesting stuff about Origins Hermeneutic this year. It's been going on for a few weeks. His name is Brad Clausen. His last name Mm. is K-L-A-S-S-E-N. Brad Clausen 4 is his Twitter handle. And uh, the other day he did just a five-tweet thread and concluded saying that Origins Writings Illustrate fundamental to speculative exegesis is the principle that the language of any given text no longer controls the practice of exegesis. Mm -hmm. And so the clarity of scripture declines in the view of people who hold to an allegorical hermeneutic and the need for some sort of intermediary magisterium that increases because the, the language of the text doesn't control the meaning anymore. And Origen really lit that fire and, uh, it ran. It ran to Augustine.
1: <laughs> yes, Augustine picks up where <laughs> Origin leaves off. Right.
0: Yes, uh, Origin also used some universalistic language, uh, making it seem like he thought all people would be saved, which is which is curious. Um, in a Christianity Today article from 2009, it says this uh, tied to Origin and Augustine. Earlier Christian writers noted how the first Genesis creation narrative speaks of the earth and the waters bringing forth living creatures. They concluded that this pointed to God's endowing the natural order with a capacity to generate living things. Augustine takes this idea further that God created the world complete with a series of dormant powers which were actualized at appropriate moments through divine providence. And Augustine argues that Genesis 1 12 implies that the earth received the power or capacity to produce things by itself. Quote, Scripture has stated that the earth brought forth the crops and the trees ca- causal- causally, not casually, <laughs> ca- causally, in the sense that it received the power of bringing them forth. This led him to conclude that the six days of creation are not chronological. Rather, they are a way of categorizing God's work of creation. God created the world in an instant, but continues to develop and mold it even to the present day. Uh, Augustine was also chummy with the Apocrypha and (laughs) (laughs) said this about baptism, quote, it may therefore be correctly affirmed that such infants as quit the body without being baptized, so who die without being baptized, will be involved in the mildest condemnation of all, that person, therefore, who denies that... Uh, he's talking about the person who argues with him on this point, who says that they, they will still go to heaven without baptism. That person greatly deceives both himself and others, who teaches that they will not be involved in condemnation.
1: Hmm.
0: So, very interesting view on infant baptism there. And that, yeah, of course, spread from him and became a popular practice.
1: Well, the whole idea of baptismal regeneration, that it is through water baptism itself that regenerates an individual kind of stems from these ideas.
0: So now past, we're past Nicaea
1: um, with Augustine, we got past Nicaea,
0: and there are several we can mention, but you just want to start knocking out a few here, Kenny? Well,
1: we'll just kind of, we're going to run out of time to actually get to what we want to get to if we dwell too long on, there's so (laughs) many things that could be said. We think of Thomas Aquinas, of course, this guy is the source of much conversation today. Uh, guys like Chesterton. Um, these guys were papists, right? Like they, they looked to the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, John Wesley, oh man, all the, all the great things that we say about um, his desire and zeal for, for holiness and all these things. Well, he had such strange ideas about sanctification. There was a second work of grace that he affirmed. Um, the Keswick theology kind of came out of some of these, the, some of his ideas. Just, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, there, There's a lot of troubling things in there. Like
0: a, Wesley taught this idea of like complete sanctification that there's True. a second, second work of grace, a second anointing that you can be born again but not actually filled with the Spirit until later. And DL Moody, Andrew Murray, a lot of people we like and respect taught that same thing. Do, and yeah. It is pretty troubling.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's there's aspects of that that made its way into some of the early uh, dispensational uh, voices yes. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's all part of it. Then there's guys that, we, that have been historically categorized as the neo-Orthodox guys, right? These guys were neo-Orthodox. <laughs> like I, I'm trying <laughs> to think of a, a way to describe... Uh, their theology, but guys They're like frustrating. Bonhoeffer, you know, frustrating, there you go, uh, Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, etc., where they had some very strange views about what the Bible is and how God communicates to us through His Word, where the Bible itself is not the Word of God, but it becomes the Word of God as you read it and interact with it. It's it's a very mystical thing. Um, you've, there's a couple of quotes in here, uh, yeah,
0: this, is from, go ahead. Uh, this is from Equip.org, which is uh, what Hank Hanegraaff used to be associated with before he went Eastern <laughs> Orthodox, just so people know where this is coming from, uh, the 2015 article.
1: The quote is, Bonhoeffer did not believe in biblical inerrancy, but followed Karl Barth's view that Scripture is true, even if it is not empirically accurate. Because of this, he rejected apologetics, considering it a category mistake, and under the influence of Nietzsche, he also denied that Scripture contains any universal, timeless principles or propositions. Oof. Bonhoeffer's view of salvation was also quite different from the views of most evangelicals. Though he experienced some kind of conversion around 1931, he hardly ever mentioned it. Later, he expressed distaste for Christians taking or writing about their conversions He even stated that the gospel was not primarily about individual salvation. While in prison, he preferred the Old Testament to the New Testament. He complained that the New Testament was tainted by redemption myths, but he liked this worldliness—he liked the this-worldliness of the Old Testament. Besides all this, Bonhoeffer was a universalist. In sum, Bonhoeffer's theology was neo-Orthodox, and his position was even more liberal than Barth's. Oof. Right so we got these both these guys were heavily influenced by you know german um liberalism the the naturalism just the getting away from the supernatural but yet they still believed in some aspects of the supernatural and so how does all these things come together uh and so they they had to kind of pave a new path that historically we've called neo orthodoxy which is a strange mis to me it's a bit of a misnomer i don't i i don't um it's not orthodox. <laughs> maybe, maybe
0: we could be the agents that cause the term to change. We'll pick a new one by the end of the episode. Right. We're going to change neo-orthodox to something else. I'll, I'll dwell on it while you tell us about C.S. Lewis. That'll go well.
1: C.S. Lewis. Everybody loves C.S. Lewis, right? He is like uh, next to Charles Spurgeon, one of the most quotable guys for our sermon illustrations. Does C.S. Lewis have issues? Yeah, sadly so. Uh, He had lots of issues in the realm of inerrancy. He had strange views of Scripture, uh, denied the historicity of books like Jonah, and questioned the historicity of the book of Job. Uh, Just his understanding of, you know, as he reads things like the genealogies and how what he finds to be discrepancies with the genealogies, that leads him to conclude that perhaps there's not an inerrancy thing going on here, though he still affirmed that it was Scripture, it is inspired, he denied inerrancy. There are other areas of things where he said and wrote some strange things. This is actually from—everybody talks about mere Christianity as being like this this great, wonderful book, right? Well, within that book, he writes this. There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy and to leave in the background, though he might still say he believed, the Buddhist teaching on certain points. Many of the good pagans long before Christ's birth may have been in this position. Yeesh. That is not the biblical approach, to understanding of, of the way... Uh, God has revealed himself in what he uh, commands us to do in response to his revelation.
0: It, it would be easier to take him charitably if he didn't use his example. <laughs> if he <Right>. would yeah. <laughs> have just left it, we still would have been uncomfortable with it, but could have like, you know, said, well, maybe he meant this, but then he uses the example and it's like, well, okay,
1: that's bad. Yeah. From the book, the problem of pain, he wrote that man is physically descended from animals. I have no objection for centuries God perfected the animal form, which was to become the vehicle of humanity and the image of himself. The creature may have existed for ages in this state before it became man. In the fullness of time, God caused to descend upon this organism a new kind of consciousness, which could say, I and me, which knew God and could make judgments of truth, beauty, and goodness. Oh, it's so
0: bad. (laughs) That is so bad. C.S. Lewis. I still haven't come up with a new term for neo-orthodoxy, but I'm going to keep working on it through this episode.
1: John Stott!
0: (laughs) John Stott, he's helpful, right? I mean, he's written commentaries and books that are helpful.
1: Yeah, his preaching book Between Two Worlds is a helpful, helpful book for expositors, people trying to work on their homiletical craft. Well, he wrote this. Uh, well, it, and I think this
0: is this is kind of interesting. It's from a book titled Essentials, A Liberal Evangelical Dialogue. And he's the evangelical, or you could say conservative, in this discussion. And it's about the essentials of the faith. And longtime listeners of this show know that we don't like that term. Essentials, all doctrine is essential. We like to say primary instead of essential. Right. So um, this is a conversation between... John Stott representing conservative evangelicalism in a liberal, and this is what Stott says.
1: Quote, Emotionally, I find the concepts of eternal conscious torment intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cater- I have hard, hard cauterizing. Word, cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as legitimate biblically found as as a legitimate biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment
0: yeah uh, annihilationism is yeah. the position he took and it's interesting I mean he admits to emotionally he finds it not right. good and then goes on to say that means that annihilationism should be considered biblical, because emotionally I find what is in the Bible to be bad.
1: <laughs> Rough standard, pal.
0: Yeah, that's not good. That's just not good. And and he may have changed his view. I think that came out in the 80s or 90s, and maybe he wrote things later where he reversed it, but I, I'm not aware of those. I've just always heard John Stott was an annihilationist, and that's the quote. So,
1: Well, my understanding of his development is that he used to affirm hell, biblically, and then evolved into the Mm. annihilationist position in his latter days. So
0: So, yeah, for those who listening who may not be clear on this, annihilationism is the view that all souls that aren't reconciled to God will be basically dissolved. They will be annihilated, Mm -hmm. and they will cease to exist, as opposed to the idea that there will be conscious Eternal suffering in the lake of fire, as Scripture tells us. Right. So, um, Stott took the annihilationist view. Well,
1: there are so many individuals, more than individuals that we could look at. I mean, we we look at uh, you know early uh, American history and the the uh, many theologians and pastors and individuals who owned slaves, like George Whitfield and uh, Jonathan Edwards, and you know all uh, so many so many individuals, and it's like. Uh, how do we, what are you doing, guys? Like, what are you doing with all this? How how do you reconcile this with your theology? Yeah. It's, it's it, troubling.
0: It, because, especially because there was a clear difference between the type of slavery that was happening then and the type of slavery that's mentioned in Israel in the Old Testament. I mean, right. we're, we've got thousands of years separating them, and they're just different situations, and you had man-stealing going on, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's troubling. Indeed it is speaking of slaves that slave owner sympathizer Doug Wilson, <laughs> what isn't wrong with Doug Wilson <laughs> uh, it's a t- he's he is the one these days, right like the the most polarizing figure in evangelicalism right now has to be doug wilson
1: it certainly has kinda of evolved that way i mean there's there's a there's a number of individuals. On, on a few on a number of issues that we could say are quite polarizing. But yeah, Doug Wilson is certainly high on the list.
0: And and here is my frustration and I think maybe serves to just kind of summarize everything we just said. The stuff that people don't want to give Doug Wilson slack on, compare that to Augustine. And how so many people just refer back to Augustine like great. But Doug Wilson devil (laughs) now wait a second read what some of the stuff augustine said i i would say in many ways maybe not in every way but in many ways he was went beyond the badness of what you say doug wilson is doing now obviously i disagree with doug wilson on many many points but if we put him back into the fourth century and he's saying what he's saying I would say people would be a lot more charitable toward him than they are because he's living today.
1: It's very possible. I know I know some of the objections that people have to Doug Wilson is less about the things that he wrote and about a lot of the controversies involving some of the high profile cases that occurred within his church. And he's he's responded to all those and offered his side of the story on all that. But
0: but like take the, the, the um federal vision. Mm-hmm. And compare that to what I read earlier about Augustine, about babies who hadn't been baptized versus babies who had been baptized. I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing here? You know, I, to me, there's a lot of equivalency <laughs> um, and maybe Augustine was more extreme. I don't know. It just seems like Augustine gets away with a lot more.
1: Well, I wonder if there would be a stronger reaction against Augustine if they if people were more aware about his troubling things and not just trying to quote him in favor because he's a voice in church history that agrees with their position on X. Mm-hmm. That might be a factor, too, where we are aware of more things with a, cur- a contemporary figure than we are with some of these people from days of yore.
0: Augustine is probably the figure in church history that gets used the most that way, because they, we yeah. do have a ton of his writings, and so yeah. whether you're a Calvinist or whatever, you're just going to run to Augustine.
1: Right. <laughs> so, okay, there's there's a, there's a little run-through church history, and there, obviously we left out so many more names that could be mentioned and issues along the way. What are some immediate takeaways? How, how do we think through this as we think through, what do we do with these guys and all their kookiness? Yeah.
0: I think, uh, you know, the rest of this episode can be pretty quick and conversational um, because here we are pointing out a bunch of things throughout history. And as we just consider a few takeaways, one, Poe buddys right? <laughs> <laughs> Poe buddys And I think we need to calm down with the quickness that we have, some of us more than others, to lob grenades at people who aren't as far off as some people were back then. Like we we have to find a way to show grace in this situation. And I'm not saying reduce primary doctrines down to secondary, Mm -hmm. but I'm saying we got to come up with some sort of way to show grace here because we oftentimes are being very uneven. Our scales are uneven in the way that we judge certain figures, both contemporarily and throughout history.
1: Well, one of the one of the key points is that even though there are these issues, and then we would categorize a lot of the things that we read as primary departures, right? Yep. These are unorthodox teachings that are contrary to foundational definitional truths of Christianity. That you you start embracing some of these ideas, you're no longer an orthodox historic Christian individual. Like you're something else. Yeah. And yet, I, yeah. Go ahead, Lewis.
0: Lewis on inerrancy and in evolution. I mean, is I think right. a really good example.
1: Yeah, like that's those are not orthodox ideas. Just full stop. But at the same time, we have never in in our discussions, as we've put forward the chart and divided it the way it's divided, we've made the the primary column as a test of orthodox Christianity, but not necessarily. A test of one's personal salvation. Yeah. And that is really an important point. That though there are departures on some things that are really key and so crystal clear in scripture that it's like it boggles our minds how any guys got to this position that they got to, there is still, even as 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 you kind of written it through in our in our show notes, the gospel thread that ties all of these people together, that there is still an affirmation of I must trust in Jesus Christ for my salvation. Now, that gets muddy and messy when we start talking about baptismal regeneration and all that sort of stuff and how that was conceptualized. Uh, even even guys like Martin Luther mm-hmm. were—some of the things that even he wrote about the role of baptism is concerning, <laughs> if mm-hmm. I can kind of say it lightly. Uh, where but, but there's still an affirmation of the gospel, and that's really uh, an important point that we need to reckon with as we think about individuals who are departing on these other areas that we still consider to be primary.
0: And for those of you who don't know, you've got a couple fundamentalists here who are having this conversation, and so we have a natural tendency to go one direction with this conversation, that we're we're seeking to fight and be balanced in what True. we're saying. Um, we're trying to juggle many different thoughts and opinions that we have right now. But I I do think we can land on this phrase, the places where people stray from the definitional aspects of Christianity we must recognize as important without jumping to wholesale condemnation. Meaning you don't just go burn all their books Uh and say, I know for sure that person... Uh, absolutely, without a doubt, is in hell, is in hell. Yes, that person proclaimed the gospel, uh, but that person also, you know, went on to do such and such. It's like okay, but this person had some sort of testimony about Jesus here. This person had some sort of witness to the biblical gospel in some degree, and we can just we can say it seems to us that this person didn't have true, genuine faith. That's fine to say, but to jump and play God and say I'm going to condemn this person, ah, uh, boy, I don't think you can do that. And I'm. And I'm not saying we should be like Rob Bell and as he was uh, in transition. I don't know if you remember that story he told where his church had an art gallery and someone had posted a picture of Gandhi uh, in the art gallery and then uh, someone attached a note to it that said, reality check, Gandhi's in hell. And he says, really? You know that for sure, that Gandhi's in hell? Well, maybe hell doesn't even exist. And that obviously led to his whole thing. Um, I'm not saying we go there <clears throat> because uh as far as I know, Gandhi had no um, appreciation for the biblical gospel well, but yeah for,
1: we we can say contra to that that quote that we read earlier from Lewis about you know Buddhists, if there's a rejection of the gospel, we can say with certainty,
0: yeah, I mean yeah what you do with jesus that's your whole salvation hinges on that, and so for people who have this embrace of the biblical Christ and his work, but then just do funny things. It's like we we have to recognize it as important, but do not jump to wholesale condemnation. And that is just a really difficult balance that will probably be different for everybody.
1: So then the the question: Okay, that's that's the individuals. Well, what about their works? Like, are we really going to read their books? Are we gonna? Are we really going to still quote C.S. Lewis? I not not that long ago, I, I put it. I quoted Lewis as a uh, uh, in a tweet that I sent out. It's, it's one of, to me, it's one of the greatest quotes of uh, the Chronicles of Nardia when it's talking about who Aslan is. Well, is that okay? Like, is that all right for us to do that? Uh, how can we do that, knowing that he was so off in some of these other areas?
0: Well, because you did that, I just I condemned you and said you're going to hell. Well, <laughs> that's
1: that is one option. <laughs> that is a ra- road you could go down. <laughs> uh...
0: Yeah, you know what Romans 1 says, not only those who practice such things, but those who approve. And here you are tweeting, Lewis, you're, you're dead to me, Ken. Yeah,
1: well, such is the end of our podcast. Just, this is it. and I'll just hit stop recording right...
0: And, <laughs> and you'll never hear my new term for neo-orthodoxy. Alas.
1: Well, there's different ways that people respond to that, right, though, right? Like, that's that's one way that people do—I think guys like Service Christy, who's like, there's got to be, like, six degrees of separation between you and some false teacher. Well, is that the right approach? Some people say, well, you know, you just—you know, really, you just got to eat the meat and spit out the bones. I don't know if you—that's a phrase that we're aware of, right, where you eat the meat, there's good stuff there. You, you, you consume that, well, then you just spit out the bones. Well, some people are going to reject against that and say, well, if you've got a cup of water, it's 98% water. Someone just puts one drop of poison in. Are you really still going to drink it? Or the, I've heard the, the Skittles illustration. There's a bowl of Skittles. One of those Skittles actually contains cyanide, but you don't know which one. How many Skittles are you going to eat? Yeah. How do we think about it? How do, how do we wrestle through these resources and these things? Like I, I held up that book earlier. Well, I've got mere Christianity sitting on my shelf and other C.S. Lewis books and some of the other authors that we've talked about. How do we think about and use their resources?
0: Yeah, and all those illustrations, there are those, um, I guess, analogies that you are just sharing. You know, those can be helpful to a degree. You know, the brownie one is another uh, famous one or cake or whatever. When, Or I think it was brownies. Like someone's making brownies and you just put a little bit of poop in it. Um, Yeah. It's like, well, just a little bit. Just a little bit of poop in it. You're still (laughs) going to eat the brownies, right? Uh, And obviously, no, you wouldn't because just a little bit poisons the whole thing, right? And so those can be helpful, but it's also unrealistic to Mm -hmm. a degree depending on... It's reductionistic. Well, where you're making application. It just depends, right? Mm -hmm. So if a person... um, you know, is saying, well, I'm willfully going to sin because my life is mostly good. I think then those illustrations really apply, right? But if it's like picking out a spouse, well, this spouse has a sin issue or like this potential spouse has a sin issue. You're not going to marry that person, are you? You need to hold out for the perfect person because just a little bit of poison will taint the whole thing. It's like, oh, that's only unrealistic. What is that talking about? So you just have to be real careful about the specific application of that line of reasoning. And when we look through church history and we consider fellow humans, there will always be a degree of error. Mm -hmm. I, you know, recently I started officiating basketball games. The referees are a part of the game. There will never be a perfect uh, uh, referee. Uh, in, in any one game I mean it's it's a big deal when an umpire calls a perfect game with balls and strikes behind the plate it very rarely happens hmm. maybe never actually happens if you get down to it because there's a human element involved and anytime there's a human element there will be shortcomings and we have to keep that in mind yes
1: I think it's helpful to think about so I think of uh, you know all those illustrations that we talked about there's actually a biblical illustration that gets to the same idea. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Hmm. And of course, in that context, Jesus, or Paul, is talking about sin and how sin can infect other areas of your life if you let it exist over here. So that's why Paul encourages church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But when it comes to other authors, it's interesting that Paul felt very free to quote not just other believers, but even secular... Philosophers, as he is engaging with both unbelievers and believers. So in first uh, in, in Acts chapter seven, seventeen, rather Acts chapter seventeen verse twenty-eight, Paul's Mars Hill uh, in Athens, he quotes the Greek poet Aratus, as he says, "Ah, are we not all his offspring?" Well, in the context of Aratus's poem, that was about Zeus, and Paul was using it as an illustrative point to help. Uh, the people there understand about how we are accountable unto the one true God, not to Zeus, but to the one true God. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three. Mm-hmm. he quotes uh, a Greek dramatist, I don't even know how to say his name, Menander?
0: Yeah, that's what it looks like to me. Menander. Men- Meninder. It'll Meninder. be like Menander. Augustine. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> How many
1: ways can we pronounce this? And then, of course, in Titus, he quotes uh, the Greek philosopher Epimen- Epimenides. The all... all... Cretans are liars is that the one? Yep, that's the one. All Cretans are liars, yeah. And so it's like he's quoting these different philosophers and quoting them in approving ways. So it's not like he's like contradicting these philosophers and these different individuals. And he's a, he's saying no, they actually got something right here.
0: Hmm.
1: And so it, so it seems that that Paul was able to make use of resources that were not grounded in scripture even and make use of them for edification purposes with his audience.
0: Well, I'm, I'm thinking about how a listener may respond to that with, yeah, but that Paul is recognizing God's like common grace, uh, this like, quote unquote, natural revelation type thing where there's, there are good ideas even among pagans that can be used as uh, just a foundation in your argument or whatever. But we're talking about people who claim the name of Christ, who deviated from primary doctrines. And so they're actually like false teachers then because they're in the church. And you never see the New Testament talking about taking from false teachers and uh, applying, applying those ideas, chewing the meat and spitting out of the bones from false teachers. And so how do we respond to that with maybe a more, maybe it is a more fundamental mentality of you just got to avoid those guys wholesale and mark them and avoid them.
1: I think that goes back to our previous discussion about, is there an affirmation of the gospel? And I, and I have a certain level of appreciation for that response, right, for someone who might be reacting against what I, what I just said with what you just said, where, okay, yeah, those are secular individuals, and they're for illustrative purposes, whereas these are claiming the name of Christ, and yet they're off on these other things— like I like I, I I get that like even, like deep down inside of me like I resonate with that kind of argument. That's that's my my fundamentalist uh, bones showing. I guess I don't know exactly <laughs> what the right word is, uh, but that 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 has a level of resonance with me. And yet, the core issues of the gospel—if these individuals are still affirming that—and there are still elements of their writings and things that are genuinely helpful and edifying. That we need to be able to find some some way to evaluate and some way to work through the resources without jumping to okay cutting it off because because then where where do you, where do you draw that line is where the question becomes uh-huh. that okay well maybe not they they were off on this but that's too much well what about other contemporary authors that we like that are you know John MacArthur. Do we agree with John MacArthur on everything? I don't. What well, does that mean? Oh, well, how much how much poison would you like in your cup uh-huh, there? Uh-huh. Oh, so now I can't even, like, I, I wouldn't even be able to have fellowship with people in my own church.
0: You yeah, and, and the tricky part about the people we're talking about today, most of them, hmm, yeah, I'm just going to say most of them, at least <laughs> <laughs> is that they're kind of caught in between because yeah. w- when you think about people who are off in our own opinions, that can mean lots of things. So like someone like John MacArthur, we're, we are going to agree 99% of the time, but something like limited atonement, uh, wink, wink Did our next episode, listen to the next episode for a full conversation on limited atonement. But, you know, we would agree on vast majority of things and it's it's only going to be in the secondary column where we're going to have disagreement. Well, right. so we could technically say, in our view, he's a little off. Well, you can also look at somebody like Marcion, the Marcionites, who mm. said there was a different God in the Old Testament than there was in the New Testament. He pitted the Testaments against each other and favored the New, uh, and that that the Old was just written off. Well, he was way off and way in heresy land, and we would never take anything from him and say, well, this is one good thing. You know, I, we just wouldn't do that with a guy who's that far off of the biblical standard of, of truth. And so these guys that we're bringing up are somewhere in between those two, right. uh, from our perspective, we could say. And that's what makes it difficult, is that these are people who who don't go that far with their offness, but they're also not as near to us as someone like <laughs> a MacArthur or a Votie Bauckham or somebody like that. And that's the struggle is... They're somewhere in between, and, and we don't really know what to do with them sometimes.
1: And it is challenging, and this is where I think the, the primary encouragement for us always has to be, and this is for everything, is that we need to read critically and with discernment, as the, the saying goes, we need to be Bereans, right? Mm-hmm. When the apostles came and they were preaching this message about Christ, the people of Berea, They were hearing it, and they say, oh, well, I'm not so sure about this, and the text says they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were so, and that is where we need to be.
0: Okay, so here's a question for you, Ken. Uh, You're interacting with a fellow Christian sometime here in the near future, and maybe this person is um, studying open theism and wants to know more about open theism. Well, it just so happens that I, in in my study of open theism, one of the best books on the topic was published by Canon Press, and Doug Wilson was, I think, the general editor, and he had some articles in there, along with other contributing uh, authors. Would you recommend that resource to that person? Because it's got Doug Wilson's name on it in the front, and it's published by Canon Press.
1: Would you recommend that resource? I So I personally have not interacted with said resource, but in the hypothetical situation, I probably would be comfortable recommending those kinds of resources, but when I do so, I'll say something to the lines of, like, I, I don't necessarily agree with all of these authors on every point, but this is a good resource that deals with that particular topic.
0: Same with, like, a John Stott commentary?
1: Probably. I've, I've, never, uh, I've never been in a situation where John Stott is the best book on a particular topic. Um, I, his book on preaching is probably—I've not read the whole thing, the book Between Two Worlds. I've, I know lots of people recommend that book. I've not read the full thing. If i read portions of it, not the full thing myself, but I would probably say, hey, this, this is a helpful book about preaching that we need to think about, the whole concept between two worlds. You're trying to help people who do not live in the context of the Bible understand the Bible that was written to a different place and different people at uh-huh. a different time. You're trying to bridge that gap. It's a helpful resource for that purpose. I'm fine recommending that book for that purpose. But...
0: Well, I've got his commentary on First and Second Thessalonians hmm. and um, had some helpful stuff in it. I, I need to go back and see how he interprets Second Thessalonians 1-9, where... Paul writes that certain men will pay the penalty of eternal destruction Hmm. away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. But uh, that would be something if you have that in mind and you know that a particular book or commentary of his touches on something having to do with the eternal life or death destruction of somebody, you may want to check that out first, right? And maybe that would determine it. But you kind of get the point here that what I'm asking when it comes to recommendations, how do you approach said things? Is it really just case by case basis like yeah.
1: that? Yeah, I, I think it is. And there might be times where I might say, Hey, this is a good book on that topic without a caveat. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I issue, I, I, you always got to hedge, right? You got to hedge everything. <laughs> it's just the <laughs> same thing to do. <laughs>
0: and it depends on the person who's asking too, it doesn't does. it? Yeah. Uh, because, um, Somebody who just may have no clue of the factors at play and if the resource doesn't touch on any of those factors that are controversial. right? Ignorance is bliss, no harm, no foul. You know, we all move on. Um, but maybe there are people who do know about certain factors and are really persnickety about someone who may disagree on this finer point. We may not even want to go there with the recommendation.
1: And and there's a difference, too, I think, between a recommendation that you might say, like on a Sunday morning, in front of the whole church, hey, this is a good book on something. I would do that differently than I would if I was in a one-on-one conversation with somebody making a recommendation oh, yeah. on a particular resource.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and I sometimes I've had to ask uh, my fellow elders, what do you think about me using this quote on a Sunday? I've, I know there have been a couple times I've had to do that, and, mm. um, you know, from this person. Got got, any, got anything against this, you know? Um so that's another another thing. We just have to be really mindful of what's going on. It actually is we're obligated as pastors and leaders and churches to, to the best of our ability, be aware. And there will always be things you'll you won't know and you'll find out after the fact and you might be upset about that. But to the best of your ability, make yourself aware of what's going on so you don't accidentally seem like you're endorsing something you don't want to be endorsing.
1: Right. And there's a level of of shepherding in the midst of that too, where we're to supposed to guard the flock, well, hopefully, in the midst of guarding the flock, we're not accidentally feeding them things that are harmful to their souls, and we want to be on guard against that, and on guard against leading someone away from the faith and in, or in, away from orthodoxy, away from truth, in an effort to promote truth. So that's certainly something that we want to be careful about and aware of. Uh, but I think that we can do that. I think we can. I think we can have a balance in how we do that, uh, based on. Using discernment, helping people understand what the issues are, but when there's a good resource that addresses a particular thing, uh, to feel free to use that with the understanding of of the factors at play.
0: Well, how do we want to close this episode? What's left?
1: I don't know. I, I think that's we've pretty much said, as far as I know, everything that needs to be said. Um, anything else that any, any things that you think need to be tied up there?
0: We just need to be so so careful about. Again, lobbing those grenades Yeah, and seeking to be, to the best of our ability, uh, judicious in the way that we judge other Christians across the board. Uh, I think there are just certain people we cut a lot of slack for that we wouldn't do with others. And I think you kind of got to figure out who, what, what end you're going to adjust. Are you mm. going to judge contemporary people less harshly? to match how you judge people in history? <laughs> or are you going to judge people in history more harshly to match how you judge people who are more contempor- contemporary? Um, I, I don't like that uneven-handedness, mm. I guess, when it comes to that. I, I That really bothers me. I do see it as a form of hypocrisy. And we just need to be really, really careful with that because you hear people talk about, I don't know, people from the last 50 years and with such confidence in I don't know, almost like violence in their words, they condemn them. But then when you go back in church history, especially when you go way back to those Antinocene fathers and others who were pretty crazy in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, I'm not saying they're not Christians. They just had some crazy beliefs and you go back and then it's like, Oh, turn a blind eye.
1: I don't like that. Definitely could use some more consistency in that regard. And yeah, it's tough, it's challenging, but we need to be, again, I guess the, the, the thing that it's got to come back to is be wise, read critically, use discernment, seek to honor the Lord. Yeah,
0: that's it. Yeah. Ne- instead of neo-orthodoxy, what about neo-gnosticism? Is it gnostic?
1: Gnostics in believe some in like ways. a secret knowledge... Ah. Uh, Maybe. You have to chew on that a little bit. Like mm. neo, neo, it's not that they believe that the that scripture contains secret knowledge. I don't know. I'll have to chew on it. I'm I'm just thinking out loud for a moment here.
0: Or Christian middle child syndrome. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking
1: out loud, Ken. Okay.
0: Well How long was this episode? It's uh we're we're over an hour. Oh, okay. Well yeah. sorry, listeners. Yeah. Or, or maybe not sorry. I don't hey. know. Our next episode's also over an hour so. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, our YouTube viewers may see that I'm back in front of my books. Uh, I was in the same room last couple episodes, just my desk was rotated 90 degrees. We were having Bible study in this room, and I needed more space, and so I had to move my desk to try to create, create a little bit more space. Well, then we had more people, and so we needed even more space. So we just moved to a different room, so now I could... Move my desk back, and I got my nice book background back. I kind of like that.
0: And we can see your microphone. I like the, yeah. that setup better. It used to be microphone out of screen. Now you look like official guy.
1: Yeah, and I'm wearing my hat today, as per the request of uh, Ken Olson. So he he told me I had an ugly head. So
0: there was a listener who requested that Ken cover <laughs> sure. Contra First Corinthians eleven. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Ken. Uh, wow. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. Like we mentioned, our next episode will be about limited atonement. It's an interview uh, with an author. We go about seventy-five minutes on that one, huh?
1: Yeah, it's a good and, episode. We cover a lot of issues, and I think hopefully it's going to be helpful for people, at least to help have help more helpful conversations.
0: He's a ruling elder in the PCA who. Uh, doesn't believe in limited atonement hopefully that what what's your appetite yeah okay well until next time i guess we can just
1: say you should do theology
0: What about the Didache? How do you pronounce it? Didache? Didache. Didache. Yeah. Didache. I think it's Which is Aida. Prop Yeah, it is, but I've heard a lot of people say Didache. key. Didache. Didache. <laughs> the Didash. Didache. I did ask you a question. <laughs> <laughs>